praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Father God, we give you thanks this morning, for without you, without your creative hand and sustaining providence, we are truly nothing and have nothing. Thank you this morning for our lives, for our breath, our health, for the call of salvation that brings us here this morning and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that you have given us. Thank you for the visitors among us. Thank you for those that are watching online. We pray that all of our hearts would be drawn towards you. Father, forgive us for our entitlement that allows us to believe that we are owed anything. Please use your word by your spirit this morning to change our hearts into hearts of humble servants that recognize the grace and benevolent mercy you have given to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a work in us that washes away the broken world in which we are immersed all week long and resurrect our hearts anew to the knowledge and declaration of the glories of the new creation in Christ that has already begun. Father, we pray the same for our sister churches in the Pacific Northwest and across the world. Today we pray for our brother Jared Garcia and his family as they prepare to travel to the Philippines to initiate a new work at Pine City Baptist Church and the surrounding churches that they support. We also pray for Capital City Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. and their pastors and congregation. We thank you for them, and we pray that you would continue to use them to impact churches throughout the world for your glory. And closer to home, Lord, we pray for Selwood Church and Pastor Jeff Lacine in Portland. Please use them to be a light in an extremely dark city, that the glory of your Son would be known and would bring your people to the foot of your throne. We thank you, Lord, that we are not alone, but we are part of a far larger church that you have assembled through all time and space. We also come to you this morning with humble petition, Lord. We ask that you would continue to work healing in the life of our sister, Debbie Jacobson. You've already been so gracious, but we ask, Lord, that you would finish the work of healing her body. Please give wisdom and guidance to the medical professionals that are assisting her. Please give patience and comfort to David and all her family that surround her. And please give strength and trust to our sister as she continues to endure. Lord, we also ask that you would continue to bring healing and repentance to those who are engaged in the war against addiction in their lives. Lord, we use this fancy therapeutic term of addiction to cover the truth that every one of us has some form of idolatry to which we turn for comfort and escape. Father, please convict our hearts of those idols so that we might turn from them and turn towards you. For those that are all too acutely aware of these idols, Please give great victory and power in slaying the attitudes and hardened hearts behind them. For those who are standing in great victory over their past addictions, we stand along with them today, praising you for the great grace that you have shown them. Please grant them even more understanding of their security in you and need for your grace today. Let their clinging to you be even stronger in victory than it was in defeat. We praise you for those who are seeing victory, and we thank you for those who are still struggling Help us to have the joy to support the former and the wisdom and love to know how to help the latter. As we come to your great word this morning, Lord, we simply ask that you would make our hearts fertile soil that would accept the precious truths you have for us today. We pray that they would reap great fruit to your glory. And I pray, Lord, that my human words would not get in the way. We pray all this today in the authority of our King, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And you can open up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter I know this might be unpopular to say in the Pacific Northwest, but I am not a huge fan of hiking just to hike. Is anybody with me? Uh, you guys don't fit in here either. But I do love hiking to places where I can get a vantage point to see all the surrounding landscape. There is nothing like climbing up through the tree line and emerging at a spot where you can look around and you can see for miles and miles. Am I right? 
On our wedding anniversary this year, Kelly and I took the kids and hiked Cascade Head. And yes, I was absolutely the slowest. They all killed me. As you come to the top of that hike, you can see the beauty of the coastline and the mountains that lay inland. And even amidst rain, it was so beautiful. It was unbelievable. And I love that moment because there are few times in life where I feel as clear-headed as in that moment. It brings me great clarity. I can see how people confuse that clarity with a spiritual clarity. It brings great clarity in one sense because it reminds me of how small I am in the grand scheme of things. You see, most of my life is spent sticking out like a sore thumb because I am so big. And on top of that, the world around us is full of the lie of how important, how big we each are. And add to that my own selfish flesh that sees itself as important, and I find myself completely confused much of the time as if I am big and the world is small. In my sin, I flip reality on its head and make all of creation about me rather than standing in the reality that I am simply a small part of God's creation. But when I stand as a small dot in a place where I can begin to see the curvature of the horizon, I recognize how large, how great God is, how amazing his creation is, and it brings me to a place of humility and a place of calm that I am his to do with as he pleases. God is the one that is of ultimate importance, and I am simply a player in his story. Looking out from one of these vantage points of elevation helps me gain clarity, and I can see myself and the world around me in a way where the chaos and noise is removed. I also love the clarity that comes from seeing where I am in connection to my surroundings. You see, unfortunately, I have a terrible sense of direction, and when I say terrible, I mean terrible. Some of you, if I asked you right now which direction you were facing, you would just know but I have to go through all sorts of mental gymnastics. I have to remember that I-5 goes a certain direction. I think it's north-south, and I-5 is over there somewhere, and then where am I? And five minutes later, I'll produce some answer, but it probably will be wrong. That's how terrible my sense of direction is. So in a sense, I'm always a bit lost. I know that's not a shock to those of you that know me. But standing at a tall vantage point, go ahead, get the tall jokes out of the way, Standing at a tall vantage point on top of a hill or a mountain, I gain clarity about where I am and where the rest of creation is. It is, to use a fancy word, elucidating. It makes things clear. As Christians who are finite in our abilities, who are surrounded by the confusing noise of the kingdom of darkness, and who constantly are lied to by our own feelings and obsessions, we are in need of some clarity. Amen? We need to regularly be brought back to the truth of who God is, who we are, and where we are in the midst of his creation and redemptive timeline. And this need for clarity is multiplied even more, isn't it, when conflict in the church enters in? Maybe someone suddenly decides they disagree with the direction of the church, or there's debate around a certain theological topic, or maybe there's a simple conflict between two parties in the church. They're no longer acting as if they're unified. This brings great chaos and confusion. And Satan loves it when this happens. It's in the fog of this spiritual warfare that he does the most damage. And so, especially in these times, especially within the church, we need clarity. Praise God that we're not alone in that need for clarity. Throughout all time and space in which God's people have worshipped him, this same issue of confusion has occurred. Our sinful pride and lordship of self causes us to charge full steam ahead in error, believing ourselves to be right and others to be wrong, and we end up making the confusion worse. This is often the case within the local church today, and it was definitely the case in the local church located in Corinth in Paul's day. And this letter that we're reading, brothers and sisters, is a letter between Paul and that local church, and they were stuck in the same fog of war in which any local church can find itself, in which any Christian can find itself. The overwhelming influence of paganism around the Corinthians and many of the members' prior lives and habits and family situations and baggage, conflict from within and without, it was all causing this fog of spiritual warfare to become very dense, and they needed someone to cut through it. They needed to take a breath and gain some clarity, 
especially if, especially if they're going to receive the correctives that Paul is going to lay down as this letter continues. So praise God that Paul, in our very short text today, will draw the eyes of the Corinthian church to the heights of God's glory and grace so that they might gain clarity about the foundational truths of their faith. In so doing, in this short text, Paul will perform a couple of tasks. He will begin to teach them by giving them the truth and instilling good orthodoxy into them, good theology. And this will continue throughout the course of this letter because there need to be correctives. They need to change their theology to truly understand the truth. And Paul will also pastor them by showing them that he cares for them in a huge way. The very text is a prayer on their behalf. He will correct them. Not necessarily in a hugely critical way here, but in a way that takes their eyes off of themselves and points them to what is good and right and true. He will have heavier correction later that we'll see in 1 Corinthians. And he will begin the task of giving them clarity so that the rest of the chaos that is within their church might be blown away to reveal God's gracious love and their love for one another within his body. And friends, he will accomplish all of this in six short verses by ascending the spiritual heights and elucidating God's truth, making it clear through a simple prayer of thanksgiving. And so this morning, what we're looking at is Paul's elucidating prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving that makes things clear. And I hope that this will provide for us the same clarity that Paul was attempting to give the Corinthian church. So let's read this prayer together this morning in verses 4 through verse 9. Go ahead and read with me out loud. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see this morning in this prayer is the confidence of our faith. Jesus Christ himself. The confidence of our faith. Now, as we look at this prayer, we realize there are few things that can bring as much clarity in the spiritual realm as thanksgiving. Whenever we bring ourselves into a mindset of gratitude to the creator of all the material universe, it will immediately humble us. And friends, this isn't just an add-on moral thing to do, that God kind of goes, okay, that's good. This is the core of what it is to worship God. When our hearts are redeemed and changed and we are repentant, turning from self-worship to God-worship, Christ-worship, the core of it is thanksgiving. It drives a stake into the heart of the original sin of pride and self-reliance to have to give thanks, to get to give thanks. And the reason for this is that the sibling sins of pride and entitlement, love to play together. And they're at the heart of the fall of mankind. In Genesis 3, Satan convinced Eve that she deserved what God deserves. She was entitled to it because, gosh darn it, she was special. And friends, if you think this is not a play anymore, just drive around and look at a billboard. You deserve it. You deserve it, the world says. Now, the sad reality of that scene in the garden was that Eve was indeed special. She was one of a kind. She was special and unique in both the eyes of the God who created her and the husband to whom she had been wed, but she was special in a certain capacity. But that wasn't enough for her. She wanted more. She believed she deserved more. Friends, this is not only at the core of original sin, but it is the very air that we breathe in American society today. It's entitlement run rampant. It's the very reason Amazon exists. 
we deserve more and we deserve it by Friday at noon. We believe we deserve to be God and to have all creation at our fingertips to honor and glorify us. But Thanksgiving, well, it undoes this lie immediately. True Thanksgiving, not an obligatory giving of thanks, but true gratitude that acknowledges reality. And we know the difference, don't we? We do. Think of our basic prayers and thanks before meals. We know the difference between, bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts and the bounty that we are about to receive in Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. Or in the Protestant version, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. (laughs) That's an obligatory prayer. An intentional prayer is the turning of our eyes to the creator of all things. To acknowledge that without his rain, without his sunlight, Without his air, his dirt, his fire, and without the animation that he gives us, none of what we are about to ingest would even be possible. I used to go to a church where the pastor would joke. He'd make fun of prayers that started with, O great sustainer and creator of all things, as if it was more holy to say, What's up, Daddy? Hey, Papa. No, to say, oh, great sustainer and creator of all things is to state what? Truth. That nothing would exist without him. It is not just academic because it's higher vocabulary. It is truth. For goodness sakes, the taste buds, the digestive tract, the neurology that registers the dopamine hit, they're his. They're not our right. And they could be taken from us at any moment. And he would be right to do so. We are owed nothing and given everything. True thanksgiving acknowledges this complete dependence. And when we do this, we go from being entitled, spoiled, depressed, and prideful ingrates to humble, thankful, rejoicing beggars who know that we have been given at any moment far more than we deserve. Friends, even in the midst of extreme suffering, we have far more than we deserve. Why? Because God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thanksgiving is one of the most powerful tools that God has given us to crucify our fleshly pride. And Paul knew this, and so we see him use thanksgiving at the beginning of multiple letters to set the stage for what he's about to say. And this would have been very natural for him as a Jew. To the Jews who looked at the Old Testament as the backbone of their faith, thanksgiving and confession, they went hand in hand. See, to confess that you were wicked was to also immediately confess as if the opposite side of the coin, in the same breath, that God is righteous and good. So Paul chooses thanksgiving to immediately refocus the Corinthians' eyes on God and not themselves. What a, what a powerful tool for a society immersed in self-consciousness and self-concern. I give thanks to my God. What a great tool for us because we live, friends, in Corinth. But notice how he phrases what is next. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. We could do an entire teaching on that phrase, always. It's sitting in the back of his mind, constant thanksgiving. But let's focus in on the my God always for you. This is a bit odd because in short order, within a couple of verses, he will talk about our Lord, Jesus Christ. So why is he calling God my God here? Well, there are different opinions about this, but I think this is Paul's attempt to show how pastoral he wants to be for them. He is modeling a pastor that goes on his knees to his personal savior, maker, and king and prays on their behalf. He prays in thanksgiving for their place in his life. Friends, this is what it is to be a Christian, but even more so, what it is to be a pastor. It's to have your flock on your mind 24-7 and constantly be giving thanks for them and praying for them. If you ever aspire to being a leader in this church, this is where you start. Long before anyone sees it, 
in the quiet of your own home, in the wee hours of the morning, when you can't sleep, you get up and you pray through the directory in thanksgiving for the people that God has placed in covenant with you. This is a good pastor right here. And this is what Paul is doing. At this early point in his prayer, Paul is giving thanks for what theologians call common grace. Common grace is the gift given to all mankind, regardless of salvation, to both the righteous and the wicked, the elect and the non-elect. God gives common grace. And to say, I give thanks to my God, well, every human should be doing that. We should regularly give thanks to God for the general things in life, for existence, for breath, sight, hearing, our heart beating. Friends, when was the last time that you paused and said, Lord, thank you that you allowed my heart to beat this morning? As you get older, you do that more, FYI. <laughs> Especially when you're a basketball coach and you about pass out at practice. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me alive. We should regularly thank him for all that he provides. As we modeled earlier, as I just said, for our food, for our light, for rain, for wind and snow, for trees and vegetation, for animals, for meat. Yes, vegetarians, for meat. For water and juice and wine and soda, for our homes, the order that government brings, and so on and so forth. For our children, our spouses, our friends. Give thanks for our lack of spouses, single people. And following in Paul's example here, we should also give thanks for the people that God has ordained to be in our, our lives. They're a gift to us, for they make us who we are. The experience of their presence molds us and hopefully molds us towards sanctification. Even those who might cause us to bristle. Well, God has providentially brought into our lives to bring about an end of his glory and our sanctification. When was the last time you thanked God for your enemies? for those people that you just can't seem to understand. For that boss that, oh my goodness. For that pastor that, oh my goodness. Brothers and sisters, how often do you pray aloud to God in thanks for these and the many other items of common grace? When we pray prayers of thanksgiving together in this church, is there silence? Or does someone need to interrupt the marathon of statements of gratitude to God? May God spur our hearts to be those people that just won't shut up about thanksgiving to God. Well, Paul here, he gives thanks, but then he continues beyond just common grace. Paul states that he gives thanks to God always for the members of the church at Corinth because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul moves here out of the realm of common grace and into the specific realm of special or popular grace. Sorry, particular grace. My slides went awry there and caught me off guard. Paul moves here out of the realm of common grace and into the specific realm of special or particular grace. Typical Reformed theology calls this special because not everyone receives it. And so it is speaking of the particular grace given to God's elect people whereby he resurrects them from their spiritual death and calls them to himself. He forgives their sin through the atoning work of Christ, places the Holy Spirit in them, redeems their heart, grants them new affections. This is special grace. And Paul is thanking God for the salvation that is common to both himself and those who are truly Christ's among the local church in Corinth. It is particular to the church, but it is common among the church. And notice that it was not grace that was simply theirs to begin with. You see, salvation is not common grace given to all mankind, as some aberrant or errant theologies might suggest. It was particularly given by God to his own. That's why it's grace. And it's only given to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he says it the way he does. Now, rather than cause us to stumble, this theological truth should give us great confidence in our faith. For it is not we that earn our part among God's people. You see, if it were common grace, then it would be up to us to earn salvation. God's done his part. He's given prevenient grace. And you guys just figure it out and choose on your own. That's scary. Isn't that scary? Because I wouldn't choose it. 
because I'm a giant sinner. And if you think that you would, then you haven't understood the gospel. It's an impossibility for you to choose it. Go read Romans 8. We cannot choose it unless God works. For it's not we that earn our part among God's people. It's not our successes or failures or worthiness or unworthiness that causes us to be part of the church. It is God's gracious action that calls us to himself. Paul points the errant Corinthian church embroiled in selfishness and self-aggrandizement to look to the true confidence of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. This will become the primary point of Paul's arguments from here on out as he tackles the many issues at play in Corinth. And that is why Christ is noted 10 times in the first 10 verses of the letter. You think he's trying to hammer something home there? He wants their attention off of themselves and onto Christ. And as we will see, whether it be the division, the lawsuits, the church discipline, the sexual immorality, the feasts of pagan gods, or any of the other myriad of items addressed in this letter, the solution will not be found by looking amongst themselves. The solution will be found by looking together to the confidence of their mutual faith, Jesus Christ, whom they serve together. Friends, Think about the application of this. You just can't get along with your roommates who are Christian. Look together at Jesus Christ. Get your eyes off yourself. You can't seem to get peace in your marriage or in your home. Look together at the confidence of your mutual faith, Jesus Christ. Get your eyes off of yourself. Well, you just can't seem to get past this issue in the church. Well, look together at the confidence of your mutual faith, Jesus Christ. Get your eyes off of yourself. What a powerful tool, thanksgiving and looking to Jesus Christ in thanksgiving. Immediately, clarity begins to come in Paul's elucidating prayer of thanksgiving. When we take our eyes off our creator and savior, we cast them on ourselves and begin to wonder if we are worthy, if we have done enough, or if we are lost and unlovable, or worse yet, why we don't have more, why God isn't answering our commanding prayers. But rather than the therapeutic solution of looking further into ourselves, we must look again to our Lord and see ourselves in light of his glory and grace. And perhaps this is the very simple change that someone here today might need. An adjustment that will actually change your life is to take your eyes off of yourself and to start looking to the creator and sustainer of your faith, Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't stop giving clarity with this one verse. He continues on to the reality of Christ's grace. The reality of Christ's grace. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. But then he continues. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And we'll stop there for a moment. Paul unpacks the special grace even further. He began with the confidence of our faith, but now he brings clarity. He elucidates even further by pointing to the reality of the grace that the Christian has received through Christ. It is a grace that enriches us in every way. And the word in the Greek for every means every. It means all. The word enriched here means to be made wealthy in abundance. Not only were we given the common grace we do not deserve, but God gave us wealth beyond what we can comprehend. One might think of Paul's words in another of his letters, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And you all think, I knew it, here we go. Hans is wearing a suit today. We're turning into one of those churches. But don't mistake this for material wealth. The enrichment that Christ has accomplished is in, notice he says, all speech and all knowledge. The Greek words here are logos, speech, and gnosis, where we get the, the word gnostic or knowledge. In ancient Greek paganism, both of these were of extreme importance. The gnosis was the subjective knowledge given to the special few who experienced the divine. Much of contemporary Christianity 
primarily of the charismatic and Pentecostal nature, still rely heavily on this. You can tell a Gnostic Christian because they are a person who constantly chases the experience. Is it any wonder that false churches have renamed their services, where we care for one another, their gatherings, where we assemble, worship experiences? They're trying to draw the Gnostic Christian. The goal in the false Gnostic Christianity is to experience God. The Logos was the objective knowledge that was handed down through tradition and in written form. And this is the one that certain of our own tribe of Christianity can fall into as a trap. To know God regardless of how that knowledge plays out in your life. I've got it here, so I'm good. You might be familiar with this idea of Logos from John 1. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Logos, the Word, was with God and was God. To the pagans and to the Corinthians, the distinction between these two, the Logos and the Gnosis, was very important. For, those, for there were those in the Corinthian church then, and there are those in the contemporary church today who make this distinction as well. Some say it is the experience of God that matters. Others might say it is the theology and academic knowledge of God that matters. And at the same time, each might go so far as to discount the other as unimportant. But what Paul is setting the stage for here in his introductory prayer is that both are active in the life of the true Christian. Right understanding of God that is not made up from ignorant idolatry or syncretism with pagan religions, that's core to being a Christian. It's knowing God as he actually is stated in his word, not making it up in our own head. And at the same time, an experience of God's love is how this knowledge should play out in the lives of believers. But, spoiler alert, Rather than be hyper-focused on spiritual gifts of individuals as the means to experience God, Paul will look amidst the community of the church, one another as gifts to one another, as the means of experiencing God. It is to be an experience that happens as the church acts out its faith and love to one another in obedience to God. And Paul will focus heavily on this topic of logos, or speech, in the chapters where he addresses what is known as tongues. And we will see that there were those that thought that they had special gifts of knowledge, gnosis, and others in the Corinthian church who thought they had special gifts of tongues, logos. And because of these supposed gifts, they were all vying for positions of power and prominence in the church. But here, Paul is starting by focusing in on the fact that Notice who has the gifts? All have received all gifts of speech and knowledge. And therefore, friends, no one was any more important to Christ or his church than another. This is going to level the playing field, which is exactly what Corinth and exactly what the church today needs. For if you are in Christ... You have been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Well, Hans, what if I don't know as much as a seminary graduate? You're learning. But what matters is that you've been given the core gnosis, the gospel. Well, Hans, what if I'm not able to say it yet? You're learning. And you have been given the core speech. The gospel. Every Christian has been given these, and because of this, we are enriched beyond all understanding. He's already trying to do, to undo, excuse me, what their earthly flesh and desire for power and prestige is doing in the midst of Christ's church. For the church of Christ is a complementarian church, just as true marriages in Christ are complementarian in nature as well. The members involved in covenant are co-equal in value and standing, but differ in roles and activity. Unfortunately, here in Corinth, chaos and fleshly selfishness had begun to obscure the view of Christ that this local church was supposed to reflect. So Paul uses the reality of God's special grace to get their eyes off of themselves and onto the one who had bonded them together by his own blood. They lack nothing from God, to be able to be unified in their mission to reflect God to the surrounding world. And so there's no excuse for their current behavior that Paul is writing to address. 
And similarly, friends, there is no excuse for the church today, for Mission Fellowship or any other true church, to let the conflict among us or the disagreements or the vying for position or popularity or connection to cause us to mar the picture that we're supposed to reflect. We've been given everything, and so we're supposed to respond in thanksgiving to that grace. It's amazing, isn't it, how a focus on this special grace of salvation clears away the confusion that often comes with conflict in the church. Whether it's in our friendships, our marriages, or any other relationship, remembering the grace that God has shown to us and the mercy with which he has forgiven us will often clear away the relational mess in which we find ourselves. I wonder if any of us need to do the same thing that Paul is doing here. What conflict do you have right now that when met with the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ, suddenly everything becomes clear? I'll give you a stupid example that's in almost every home. The spouse that's angry at the other spouse for leaving clothes on the floor, right? This is one of those sins that's fit for public consumption, right? Okay? So... There it is, and you're sitting there, and you're so angry. I've told them a million times that if they love me, they'll pick up those clothes off the floor. Well, there's that pride and entitlement going again. What happens if in that moment, you pause and think of the grace you've been given by the cross? I deserve nothing but eternal conscious torment in hell because I'm a rebel against God's will. Yeah, I think I can cut my spouse some slack for being a rebel against my will. See how that works? The gospel brings clarity. Apply it to anything in life, and it will bring clarity. Christ becomes the focus, and the selfishness that is often at the heart of conflict fades away. It disappears. What a beautiful thing. Now, as we move forward in 1 Corinthians, we will see that the topic of gifts is one of the main things that Paul will address. He says here at the end of this, so that you are not lacking in any gift. This is going to be one of the big things that he addresses, especially in chapters 12 through 14. It was one of the major issues dividing the church and tearing it apart as one member lifted up their giftings above another. Friends, this happens in every church that ever drives towards giftings. It rips it apart because with giftings, what are you looking at? Me! What gift do I have? Let me do another spiritual gift survey so I can figure it out. Guys, I've sat with enough people that have done the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or whatever else. You just sit around staring at yourself and how great you are. And so any church that focuses in on the gifts, as we will see Corinth did, as opposed to seeing one another as gifts given by God in our own special way provided for the church to enrich the church and give glory to God, any church that does it wrongly, it's going to lead to conflict. And that's what happened in Corinth. So it's very interesting here in these few short verses that Paul is actually giving thanks to God for this church in conflict, especially because they're in conflict with him, as well as giving thanks for the gifts, which are really a big part of the problem, as we'll see. But Paul knows exactly what he's doing here, for it is not the gifts that are the issue, it is the use or the ownership of the gifts that's the issue. It's the selfishness, it's the pride. Rather than simply standing up in blatant refusal of all that is happening in the Corinthian church and saying, enough with the gifts, we'll see that he finesses his way through these issues. And he gives great clarity as we'll continue on what gifts are and what they're to be used for. The members of the Corinthian church were boasting in themselves and the gifts that they were exercising. But Paul is here beginning to do what he will do throughout the letter. He's taking their eyes off of themselves and focusing them on the giver of the gifts. Jesus Christ, their common Lord. He will say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's trying to tell them, guys, you're nothing in yourselves. Look to the giver of gifts. And Paul's elucidating prayer of thanksgiving to God here is setting the stage for all that he hopes to accomplish in the rest of the letter. And he starts off with giving thanks for the very people he hopes to challenge or even discipline a bit with his words. Paul realizes that if the members of the church at Corinth have truly been redeemed, then they are God's people, not his. 
And they are evidence of the same grace that has brought Paul out of darkness and into the light. So friends, when we see another believer, even one with whom we might be upset with at the moment, we must pause like Paul and strive to see the grace of God that has saved them and let it remind us of the miraculous gift that we have been given. For we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and his death, resurrection, and enthronement. And this work of Christ to die in our place and show that his death saved us from our sin by resurrecting from the grave, it is sheer grace. We have done nothing on our own to earn it through moral works. Otherwise, we would be the ones like Corinth boasting in our salvation. Christ has saved us. He's made us his own. He's rescued us from our sin and the wrath it deserves and has called us to live out a life that reflects him in good works for the rest of our time on this earth. This should clear everything away and set the tone for every moment of our lives and every interaction we have in relationship. But Paul doesn't stop here. He brings even more clarity and he does throw, so through the final section of this prayer where he speaks of the motivation of Christ's coming return. The motivation of Christ's coming return. <clears throat> Let's read the whole of our text again, focusing on the last two and a half verses. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is giving thanks for what Christ has done previously in saving the true members of the Corinthian church, as well as what Christ is doing presently in enriching them with the gifts that serve one another. And he's pointing out to them that they need to use these gifts because they are awaiting something on the horizon. And friend, you're already going to start asking the question, I know because I've been in Christianity a long time, but Hans, what gifts do I have? I don't speak in tongues. I don't seem to have words of knowledge. I'm not very administrative. Notice how that one never gets brought up in Pentecostalism, by the way. It's because it's not sexy enough, right? Just ask my wife, the accountant, okay? Administration is never brought up, right? You ever see anybody bopped on the head in Pentecostal circles? You're given the gift of administration. It doesn't work. That's how we know that that's false, to look at it that way, right? So you might say, I don't have any gifts. Well, you'll see as we go through this, you do. And he's even saying it right here. In fact, you have all gifts in speech and knowledge. Because what is the gift? It's the gospel. And you, as an ambassador of the gospel, are a gift to the church. This is the truth of the giftings that he's talking about here. So each of the members need to understand this. And they need to understand that they need to use this fact that they are a gift to one another and they've been given all gifts to enrich the church and build it up to the glory of God and they will do so, why? As they wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Each of the members of the local church in Corinth were at the time of the letter awaiting the second coming of Christ. The particular day known as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is referring explicitly to the return of the Lord Jesus to the earth to judge. On that day that, friends, is appointed, just as much as your next birthday is appointed, just as much as tomorrow is appointed, the day of judgment is appointed, it's going to happen. And he will judge the living and the dead for the words that we have stated and the actions that we have committed. Brothers and sisters, ours is a day where the predominant view of Christianity is one that has forgotten, or at bare minimum, greatly minimized the place of the day of judgment. Why? Because it doesn't fit in the false gospel of nice. Now, many reasons exist as the collective cause behind this minimization, 
But within the church's minimization, most of the reason falls into the category of false gospels. The therapeutic gospel, the gospel of nice, the social justice gospel, the health and wealth gospel, and on and on it goes. Satan has used these false gospels to draw the eyes of the church away from the truth. And you can always tell a false gospel, friends, because it will minimize or remove God's wrath, God's judgment, and the truth of the consequences of the real place known as hell. A famous theologian in the 20th century named H. Richard Niebuhr had a quote that spoke to this when he, asked, he was asked to define liberal theology. And by that adjective liberal, he does not mean politically liberal, but liberal in the truest sense in that it is not preserving orthodoxy. It's coming up with errant views. He described liberal theology as a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So if any of those parts are part of your theology, you're in sin. If you're one of those people that is bought into the false view of annihilationism, you're in sin. It is contrary to the word of God. The topic of the coming judgment and eternity thereafter is not a side note for Paul. It is core to his argument for how to reform the church at Corinth. And if you want to argue with me on this, we will cover this topic as we go through chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 11 and 15. Why? Because Paul does. He goes through the topic of the revelation of Christ as king and judge in these chapters. And in these sections, Paul is adamant that there is a day appointed by God where he will call all of his creation to account as to whether or not we were faithful in our service to him. And for those that are his, he will draw into everlasting peace and rest. And those that are not his, the Bible makes it very clear that they will move into eternal conscious torment for all eternity. Because there will never come a point where repentance occurs in hell. To Paul, the day of judgment was a major motivator of all of his actions. And his use of the topic throughout this letter will show that he believes it should be a major motivator for all Christians' actions. It's funny because I didn't even talk to Seth earlier when he said that this idea of wrath, of judgment, of, of these things doesn't make us feel good. I want to ask you, how does the topic of Judgment Day feel to you? Does the coming Judgment Day motivate you in your daily actions? Some might say, I don't think Christians should be motivated by fear. That's not the Jesus I know. But remember, friends, that the Bible is clear, as we heard earlier, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And this is fear, meaning a reverence that proclaims the truth that he is judge, and he has the right, he is, has the responsibility to call us to account. This is not fear because he is untrustworthy or evil or abusive. This is fear because he is holy and we are evil. The role of judge is a role that he takes on, not as an interloper, attempting to grasp for control that is not his, that is actually ours. No, this is core to what it means to be creator over creation. To not judge would be a dereliction of the core duties that are innate to his nature. And so Paul, oh so gently, brings clarity to the church by inviting them to remember that they are not judges under their own authority. 
He will even cover this topic in depth when he takes on the topic of church discipline, which we'll see exists as a core mark of the true church. No, they're to enact judgment that doesn't come from themselves, but flows from the ultimate judgment of God that is to be revealed. In fact, when a church does church discipline, as we'll see later, it's not saying, we judge you to not be a Christian. It's us waving the giant red flag going, hey, if judgment day were to happen tomorrow, I'd be really worried about you. That's what church discipline is. And that's why it's loving, because judgment day might be tomorrow. And what are you going to say to the church that says they love you if we allowed you to continue on in sin that would result in eternal conscious torment? For Christ will be revealed as judge and perfect Savior. For the world, Christ will be revealed as God, Lord, and judge. For Christians, he will be revealed as the same. But the beautiful news here, the gospel, is that in judging, judgment will fall upon himself for those that are in Christ. Through his sacrifice in our place, notice what he calls us. He will sustain us to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know about you, but at 44 years of age, with all of the sin that I have committed and still do, that's a lot of guilt. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ has saved me from that guilt, and he's working in me to change it so that I become more like him. And even when I fail, I have the beautiful hope of the gospel that when I stand before him, he will show his own nail-scarred hands as the consequence of my sin. And he will take my sin and he will welcome me into his eternal rest. And this is the truth for any of you that have accepted the gospel this morning. If that is not you, I know you carry guilt. The entire world is built around trying to assuage that guilt. And Christ wants to take it off of you today. He wants to nail it to the cross and have it be gone for all eternity. And he wants to build you so that it's not just there as a hope for the future, but it's a hope that happens today as he changes your heart to be more like him. If you have a desire to know this God who's given you this gospel, come talk with me after service or come talk with one of the elders. We would love to talk with you about this gospel. Because of Christ, we will be found guiltless. Praise God. Now, as those who study the word of God, we obviously have more clarity on who Christ is than the rest of the world. But notice his wording. Even as Christians, we see through a glass dimly. The fact that he needs to be revealed shows that we do not see him clearly. This is part of the reason we have to be engaged in the word every moment of every day, in the mornings to set the pace of the day, meditating it on all day, coming together as a church, looking to the word. It's because our brains, our hearts don't see him clearly. We have to have clarity brought to us. And this is the whole point of the book whose name is the same Greek root word that Paul uses here, the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor known in English as Revelation. You guys familiar with it? We did a little work in it recently. I guess not so recently anymore. Everybody's favorite word out of Revelation is? Recapitulation. Love it. I'm glad there's a few of you that remember, right? Well, Christ saw fit to give that revelation to the church because he wanted us to have greater understanding of who he is and who he is and who he will be. You see, his work did not begin and end with his death and resurrection that brought us salvation. No, his work continued into his enthronement and his current reign, and it will continue to the day of judgment and into eternity future as ruling God and King. So in the letter of Revelation, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares Jesus to be currently reigning over his elect people in unity. And he has poured out his gift of grace to them in the present until he returns to judge the living and the dead. It should then follow, therefore, that the church at Corinth, as well as the church in Salem, should be a reflection of that truth of heaven here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Unfortunately, as we know about ourselves and as we will see in Corinth, we have a hard time fulfilling that duty. Sometimes we mar the image we're meant to reflect by letting our fleshly conflict disparage the image of God amongst us. 
Sometimes it's by committing the same prideful sin as Corinth, focusing on ourselves rather than pointing to the one who we reflect in those works. And yet, Paul's last statement in this section is meant to draw us out of these errors to a place of hope. Why? Because in spite of their sinfulness and current brokenness, God will be faithful to save them. That's good news for us, isn't it? In spite of my sinfulness and my brokenness, God will be faithful to save. Man, this should bring us great hope. And it should motivate us to align our actions with the ultimate cosmic reality of what Paul says here. No matter the current strife or error in your life, no matter the sin in your life, no matter the strife or error or sin in the church, God will overcome it with his faithfulness to his people. That is why Paul can both write a letter of intense correction to the people of Corinth, while also being assured that those that are truly his will be saved. Friends, we are not assured heaven by our own greatness or our own wonderful charity our own wonderful spiritual prowess. No, we are saved by the call of God into the fellowship of his son. And if one has been called, that call is so sure that we then receive correction by the Holy Spirit and by God's people with thankfulness because we are secure in the knowledge that God is bringing about the change of sanctification that he began at the cross. And so we then submit to it with our whole hearts because we love it and we're thankful that the Lord is doing that work. Friends, remember that this church that we're observing in these pages, pages is the poster child for spiritual error and fleshly sin. They were embroiled in sexual immorality, lawsuits against one another, errant theology, and on and on. And as we read through this letter, we will need to remember this prayer when we get into some of those most dark exhortations and convictions that Paul lays out, some of his statements will be downright sarcastic and shaming. And yet he firmly believes that because it is God who is doing the work for those that are truly his own, he can give thanks for what God has done and will do with these people. This is not a result of the Corinthians, nor is it a result of us. It is because of God's greatness that we will be established in his goodness forever. Paul brings so much clarity here because this sets the stage for fighting against the Corinthian boasting on their own behalf. They have to instead turn to Christ as the confidence of their faith, see the reality of his immense grace, and be motivated that all of history is coming to the culmination of his coming judgment so that they and we will face him with an understanding of his glory, not our own. Friends, if this doesn't bring clarity to the Christian, I'm not sure what will. Brothers and sisters, as we move forward in our worship this morning, and as we embark on the week ahead, let's let these same truths elucidate our own existence as if we were standing on a high mountain seeing all that's around us. For Christ is the center of all of our lives. He has united us by his sacrificial blood and resurrection to glorious enthronement. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Let's let these truths clear away the noise and cause us to live lives dedicated to the obedient worship of his great name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together now. And as we move into communion... Let's first speak the truths of our faith to one another through the Apostles' Creed. I'll ask the question in italics, and you, if you are a believer, you respond with the answer underneath. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 
He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come on up. In our, in our time this morning, Lord, you have given us great clarity, and we thank you for it. You've pointed us to the confidence we have in Christ. You've given us an understanding of the great grace we've been given. And you've helped us to remember that you will send your son to come to judge the living and the dead. Let these things clear away all the noise, Lord, so that we might stand established in the worship we were created for. In this moment, we are more assured of our purpose than at any other time. We were created to worship you, and so we give you praise. As we step into communion, I pray, Lord, that it would not just be a rote tradition, but that we would see the truth that you have invited us to your table, that we, the lowly beggars outside the city, have been invited into the eternal city, and we've been asked to sit at the king's table and given a great bounty of riches, more than we deserve, more than we can even understand. Help us to look back to the cross and understand its power and help us to look forward to the second coming of Christ where we will see eternity begin in a way that we never have before. But I pray, Lord, that even now you would give us clarity that we might see that day more so than we ever have before. Help our hearts to be changed because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.